Well, since I am the new pastor on the block, <laughs> here's a bit of background information. Patty and I met at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. After graduation and our wedding in 1969, we moved to Illinois, where I attended Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. After graduation in 1972, God privileged me to serve evangelical free churches in Littleton, Colorado as a youth pastor, Woodbridge, Connecticut, and Apple Valley, Minnesota. I then served for 14 years as a full-time chaplain in a long-term care facility in Minnesota that was affiliated with and endorsed by the Evangelical Free Church. After retirement five years ago, we moved to Washington to be close to our son and his family, and then God led us to this island and to this church back in August. So it's great to be here, a part of the family here. It is the most frequently asked question of me in my entire career of 47 years. No, it's not, why does God allow evil? No, it's not, um, why do bad things happen to good people? And no, it's not, what does the name free mean in your church? Does that mean you don't take an offering? <laughs> but the most frequently asked question of me throughout my entire career has been, how did you ever get the name Highland? <laughs> and here's my standard answer to that question. I was named for my father, who was named for his father. My grandfather, get this, was one of 21 children. No twins or triplets, 21 children. Struggling for names, my great-grandparents, who lived on a farm about 50 miles from my hometown in Richmond, Virginia, came up with all kinds of names. Some of them were named after flowers, like my great-aunt was named Daisy. Some of them were named after cities in Virginia, like Winston and Waverly. Two years ago, thanks to Ancestry.com, I was able to connect with a, a new family member that I never met before. Her grandfather and my grandfather were brothers in that band of 21. Her father had the middle name Highland, and he was always told that the name came from Highland County, Virginia. And uh, which is located on the Virginia-West Virginia border and as referred to in the state of Virginia as the Switzerland of Virginia. Now, I've often shared with people who have asked about my first name. I'll go on to tell them, well, you know what? My middle name is even stranger. Brace yourself. It's been traced back in my family to the early 1800s where they got the name Green Hill, not Green Bank, but Green Hill, I have no idea. We do have the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, but I don't know what Green Hill they had in mind when they started using that name as a middle name. Now, I endured an awful lot of grief <laughs> as a kid growing up about my name. You know, I used to dread the first day of school. 
the teacher would read off the list of names in the class. Would Highland Greenhill Goodman III raise his hand? <laughs> and I'd raise my hand, and all the kids turn around, who's got that weird name? Okay, it's me. It's me. So I informed my father before our first child, Julie, was born that if and when I ever had a son, his name would definitely not be Highland Greenhill Goodman IV. I told him that God stopped with three, and so we're going to stop at three. And my son, Philip Greenhill Goodman, is very grateful that I made such a decision about 40 years ago. Juliet asked Romeo a question and then answered it herself. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. That's certainly some truth to that statement, but you and I and Romeo are not plants. We're people. And names do make a difference, if not to roses, at least to people. Now, I haven't personally counted them, but I have read once that there are more than 700 different names and titles of Jesus Christ found in the scriptures. That each name or title that is given to him is truly a dual revelation to us. Each name or title reveals Jesus Christ, who is in himself, and each name reveals what he wants to do for us or be for us. 700 years before he was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah saw him coming. When the prophet, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, revealed his name the name of the child to the people of his day, it truly must have aroused our interest and curiosity. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. During these Sundays that make up the Advent season, we have focused our attention on the four names given to us by God through the prophet Isaiah. As E.J. Young suggests, these four compound names of our Messiah and Savior, quote, constitute a healing balm in which the Christian soul will find comfort and strength throughout time and eternity. His name is Wonderful Counselor. His name is Mighty God. His name is Father Forever. His name is Prince of Peace. Let's unpack that name a little bit this morning. His name is Prince. Now, for the people of Isaiah's day, this name or title could have been used in a number of different ways. The masculine form of the Hebrew is the word sar. The feminine form is Sarah, which was Abraham's wife. The word is used 381 times in the Old Testament in at least six different ways. 
The prophet Isaiah told his people that the child would be born, would have his name, would call him prince. But he would not just be any leader or any chief or any military commander, not just any royal ruler or religious official or angelic leader, but he would be Shar Shalom, the prince of peace. Now, for the people of Isaiah's day, there was no question as to the meaning of the word shalom. To them, it meant far more than just silence or the absence of war. Shalom was a living, vibrant thing that made for the well-being of all of mankind. The word shalom conveyed the idea of peace and prosperity and health and completeness and safety. Shalom implied the possession of adequate resources. It implied wholeness, harmony, and fulfillment. And implicit in the word shalom was also the idea of unimpaired relationships with others. About 25 times in the Old Testament it is used as a word of greeting or farewell, as it is still used in Israel today. And nearly two-thirds of its occurrences Shalom describes the fulfillment which is the result of righteousness and of God's presence. The realization of God's presence with us. Later in Isaiah, he would speak about that shalom. In chapter 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that the fruit of righteousness will be shalom, peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Isn't that great? Quietness and confidence forever. This kind of peace has its source in God. He is the one who will speak shalom to his people. His promises to David in 1 Chronicles 22 put shalom in context with calmness, rest, quietness, which are obviously gifts of God. Solomon reminds us that a heart at peace gives life to the body. But the classic statement using the word shalom it's usually considered the Aaronic benediction recorded for us in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you, there it is, shalom, peace. This benediction identifies the person to whom God has given shalom as the one who is blessed and guarded and treated graciously by God himself. 700 years before his birth, Isaiah saw him coming. And this fourth and final name that's given to him is truly climactic and emphatic. His name is Shar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Like no other leader, chief military commander, royal ruler, religious official, angelic 
leader before or after him, this child would have the authority and the ability to establish, seek, pursue, and preserve peace so that those under his care and protection could enjoy the possession of adequate resources and unimpaired relationships with God and with others. Now, if we accept the fact, as Warren Wiersbe has suggested, that every name that he bears indicates some blessing that he shares, then how do we go about applying that name, Prince of Peace, to our lives today? What does it mean? What should it mean that we celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace? Well, to begin with, just as his name, Wonderful Counselor, implies that we all need spiritual counsel, and just as his name, Mighty God, implies that we all need physical and spiritual might to lean upon, and just as his name, Father Forever, implies that his love for us and his work in us remains undiminished throughout all time, so his name, Prince of Peace, implies that we all need peace. We all need peace. That's why the Prince of Peace came. In the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he came to guide our feet into the path of peace. In the scripture that was read earlier, in the words of the angels to the shepherds, he came to give peace to those on whom his favor rests. Thinking in terms of exactly what the word peace means, it is certainly true that we need adequate resources to face the struggles and the storms of life. Peace has nothing to do with the situation on the outside. It has everything to do with the condition on the inside, doesn't it? Certainly it could be said of the Prince of Peace that he exemplified a life of peace when he walked upon this earth. I mean, he was the one who fell asleep in the storm on the boat, right? He was the one who did not panic when there was 5,000 men waiting to be fed. His disciples were panicking, and he said, take it easy, guys, I got it under control. Just, just relax, just relax. Then the night before his crucifixion, he calmly moved from one judge to the next and even prayed for his executioners. Our Lord tr truly possessed adequate resources that enabled him to be calm on the inside despite what was happening on the outside. His peace came from the depths of his soul, of his personal relationship with his father. He was at peace. And our Lord wanted that kind of peace to be available to his disciples then and to us today. At their time of greatest upheaval in the night before his crucifixion, the Prince of Peace looked at his disciples there in the upper room and he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, guys. I do not give as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. I have told you these things so that, get this, in me you may have peace in me. Peace. Adequate resources to face the struggles and storms of life. Are you at peace today? 
What's going on in your life? What's happened in your life in the last week? You face Christmas coming and you're not sensing much peace this morning. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It is a person who is a gift. His presence with us brings us peace within us. The presence of the Prince of Peace is not something we try to manufacture. It's something we accept by faith based on the promises of the Word of God. For his children who are part of his forever family, peace is not a shallow emotion based on feelings and circumstances. It is a deep confidence and joy expressed by Isaiah in the verse that I referenced earlier that I want to challenge each of us to memorize and meditate upon this week from chapter 26 and verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Peace, after all, is one of the fruits of the Spirit's presence within us. Peace. His name is Prince of Peace and implies we all need peace. We all need adequate resources to face the challenges of life. It is also true that we need unimpaired relationships, first and foremost, with God. That need is expressed in these words from Job, chapter 22. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, good will come to you. But before we can be at peace with God and experience an unimpaired relationship with him, the massive barrier that prevents such a relationship must be removed, right? And that's why the Prince of Peace came to pay the penalty for and to permanently remove sin. My sin, your sin, the sins of the entire world. As Isaiah would later, later write of him, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us, there's the word, peace, was upon him. As Paul reminded the churches in Rome and Colossae, we have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have, there's the word, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ who reconciled to himself all things by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. As the name Jesus implies, he came to earth on a mission to save his people from their sins. Sins that had created an uncrossable divide between sinful man and a holy God. At Bethlehem, he became flesh and entered the human race. At Calvary, he became sin for us, bearing your sin and my sin in his body on the tree. And it took the blood of Christ to make possible and provide a bridge for guilty sinners to have an unimpaired relationship with the God of heaven and earth.
question. Are you at peace with God today? Are you? If today you were to suddenly find yourself standing before the sovereign king of the universe, would he say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your Lord, or would he say to you, depart from me? I never knew you. Are you at peace with God today? If your answer is no or I'm not too sure, then I would invite you to connect after the service with me or Pastor Jim or the elder who will be on your right side over here after the service. There's nothing more important than being at peace with God. His name is Prince of Peace. His name implies that we all need peace, we all need adequate resources, we all need unimpaired relationships with God, but also with others. That when our Prince of Peace came into this world, he not only broke down that barrier between sinful man and a holy God, he broke down barriers this way too. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he reminded the Ephesian believers, listen to this, that they were at one time, you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without God and without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away from him have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our priest who has made the two one and destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Since Jesus Christ is our Prince of Peace, who died to make possible unimpaired relationships, not only this way, but this way, we who are his followers should be committed to developing and maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should be committing to letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, since as members of one body, we are called to what? We're called to peace. That as far as it depends on us, we are to live in peace with everyone. And even though we may hold differing views in some gray areas where the scriptures are not explicit, and on non-essential issues where our salvation does not rest, we are commanded in Romans chapter 14 to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Question. At this Christmas season, are we enjoying unimpaired relationships with the members of our immediate family, our church family, our coworkers, our neighbors? Is there enough evidence in our lives to convict us that the Prince of Peace is ruling in our hearts? Is there something we need to do or say that will enable us to be at peace with that family member, that church member, a neighbor, co-worker, 
as far as it depends on us, the Prince of Peace has commanded us to live at peace with everyone. His name is Prince of Peace. Implies we all need peace. We all need adequate resources. We all need to have unimpaired relationships with God and with others. But I believe it also encourages us to pray, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Because we are all called to be peacemakers. What did the Prince of Peace say in the seventh beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We are all called as God's children to be active producers of unimpaired relationships between sinful men and women and a holy God, between family members and friends and church members. We're called to be peacemakers. And what are some of the characteristics of a peacemaker? Well, a peacemaker obviously must be at peace. Does that make sense? A peacemaker must be peaceable. A peacemaker must actively pursue peace. A peacemaker must control their tongue. Oh, my. A peacemaker must keep the essentials in focus. A peacemaker, yes, must be willing to risk pain. And a peacemaker must live in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit who lives within us that's producing the fruit of peace. As Paul reminded the church in Corinth in his second letter to them, God reconciled to himself us and has given to us the message and ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are called to be his ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal, get this, through us. Peacemakers. One author sums it up this way. I love this. We must remember that God does not give us peace so that we may sit back and enjoy it. He gives us peace that we may be able to plunge ourselves into the tangled problems of a needy world and share Christ with those who are at war. Peacemakers. And according to the Prince of Peace, what's the reward for being a peacemaker? They will be called the sons of God. Now the Greek order is interesting here. For they sons of God shall be called. The idea is that they and no others shall be called God's sons. The form of the verb suggests that it is God, not mere man, that does the calling, that God assigns the title, the sons of God. And that title is, is very significant. In Jewish thought, the word son referred to more than just a male child. It was often used in the sense of partaker of the character. Partaker of the character. The peacemaker's reward then is that they have the privilege and joy to be able to live before others the peacemaking character of the Prince of Peace. 
that those who are peacemakers, James reminds us, will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. I first met him after I began my ministry as a chaplain at Parkview Care Center in Buffalo, Minnesota in the spring of 2000. My heart was quickly drawn to Abner. A man had been blind for many years, who was now confined to a wheelchair, having suffered a stroke that left half of his body unusable. We would talk about many things, but more often than not, our times would center on his life as a farmer and his love for the violin, which he could no longer play because he had only use of one arm. In time, the topics transitioned to a deeper level as I sought to build a bridge to his soul. Abner shared with me his struggle with things in the past that he wished were different and that he still experienced incredible embarrassment and grief because of what he did. Like most residents in a long-term care facility, with a lot of time to think, Abner was plagued by thoughts relating to personal failures in his life and in relationship to his failure with his son, his only son. Their strained relationship, the cause of which we never discussed, had kept them apart for more than a decade. Though we talked about the joys of being forgiven by God and then peacefully resting in his forgiveness, Abner continued to struggle with his past and believing that God could or would forgive him. One day I shared about God's forgiveness in the devotions that I led each morning over our PA system in our building. Somehow God led me to go and visit Abner that day. And when I stopped by his room, he was laying in his bed and he, turned, he heard my voice and he turned over and he said, I was listening to what you said this morning about forgiveness. And for the first time, it made sense to me. And at that moment, I believed that God could and would forgive me. And then placing his one good hand on his shoulder, he looked over in my direction and he said, it was like a huge burden being lifted off of my shoulders. It was a moment I will never forget. I still see his hand up. It was like a burden being lifted off of my shoulders. In the days following that life-changing moment for Abner, I continued to encourage him with the fact that God had removed his sins as far as the east is from the west. He was at peace with God. But having been reconciled with God and experiencing the peace of being forgiven by God, that peace which transcends all understanding, Abner longed to be reconciled to his son. 
And we began to pray to that end. One day I said to Abner, Abner, how would it be if I wrote your son a letter on your behalf? Remember, he's blind. He'll use of one hand. So he said, that's fine. So I, I wrote the letter. I brought it to him. I read it to him. And I said, is this letter okay for me to send to your son? He said, that sounds great. Thank you. The letter was mailed. The days, weeks, and months rolled by. No response from his son. Then one day, a nurse stopped me in the hall and she said, we believe that Abner's health is changing drastically. His time with us is drawing to a close. Sensing that that window of opportunity for reconciliation with son was quickly closing, I wrote a second letter to his son on a Tuesday. The following Sunday afternoon, I experienced another moment that I will never forget. As Abner and his son asked each other for forgiveness and granted each other forgiveness. That was on a Sunday afternoon. I met with the son before he returned to southern Minnesota. He thanked me and left. When I came into the facility the next morning, the nurse stopped me and said, Abner went home to be with the Lord last night. At peace with God, at peace with his son, and face to face with the Prince of Peace. And thankfully, I'll see Abner later, and he'll see me for the first time later in God's presence. His name implies and reminds us that we all need peace. Peace with God, peace with others, and that we're called to be peacemakers. That's who we're to be, peacemakers. And it also certainly implies that we can look forward to that day when there's truly peace on earth. That though peace has been purchased and made possible by the blood of Christ, and then there are those there's peace in our hearts today, even with the struggles around us, we can still have peace. And though we're at peace with God and peace with others, there will be no ultimate peace till the Prince of Peace returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom. After giving us the final name, the Prince of Peace, the very next verse, Isaiah writes, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In that day, the promise of ultimate peace that Isaiah describes two chapters later will be fulfilled. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf 
together, and a child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isn't that exciting to think that that day is coming? And we wait in a spirit of joyful expectancy for the second advent of the Prince of Peace. And as we await his return, let us enjoy and embrace his peace that his presence brings to us. Let's reflect his peace in our families, in our church, in our community. And let's recommit ourselves to being peacemakers and ambassadors of his peace to a troubled world. We love him. We labor for him. Yet we look for him. We live as if he could come today, but we work and do his kingdom's calling as if he's not coming for a thousand years. And we cry out in our spirits, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Prince of Peace, we worship you today and thank you for who you are and what you long to share with each of us today. May we all find comfort and strength in your names until we, like my friend Abner has experienced, see you face to face. As the Apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Thessalonica at the end of his second letter to them, so I pray for each of you. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Amen.